So my dad is quite the storyteller. I, I don't mean that he makes up stories, but over the course of his life, he has found himself in several, probably many, humorous situations. And over the years, I have enjoyed hearing about them. One of my favorite stories is when he walked into a corner store with a winning lottery ticket. Now, my dad's not a gambler, but from my recollection, he was gifted this gift from somebody. It was a scratch ticket, one of those ones with three sections. And if you scratched all three and they matched with the same number, you would win that much money. So my dad had the ticket, and he started to scratch it, and he scratches the first one, $25,000. So he scratches the second one, $25,000. And you can imagine maybe his heart started thumping a little bit more. His mind started wandering, oh, what if this last one could be the same number? So he scratches the third one. Twenty-five. You can imagine his excitement. I'm told he kept it quiet all day until after work, and then he went to the corner store to cash in his prize so you can imagine, my dad walks into the store, probably with some sort of swagger, sense of pride, accomplishment, with a smile on his face, and he slaps down the ticket on the counter, expectingly, he's expecting something back, and the person at the counter takes the ticket, he scans it, he looks at the ticket, he looks at my dad, he looks at the ticket, and he looks at my dad, and he says, I'm sorry, sir, but what is it you think you've won? You see, it turns out that the third number that my dad had scratched only had two zeros and not three. So the ticket actually read 25,000, 25,000, 2,500. You see, he wasn't deserving of anything that day. What he had was worthless. It's a good thing the jackpot wasn't bigger, or else he might have quit his job and expecting, of, expecting an early retirement or something. You see, my dad had big expect, expectations that day. He thought he was walking into the store deserving of a big payout. Yet he failed to look closely. He overlooked what he had. The result for him was obviously he didn't get the prize money. That and, of course, a lifelong embarrassment, which I've just spread to all of you by telling this story. But in a similar way in our text this morning, the Israelites misjudged their circumstances. They felt as though God owed them something. And he wasn't upholding his end of the deal. They looked around themselves and they saw the deeds that were going unpunished, not only unpunished, but those people who were committing these, these offensive, wicked deeds, they were actually prospering. They accused God of not doing his job. Their attitudes of God were similar to that of my dad as he put that ticket on the counter. They were expecting something. They were saying, where is God? Where is God? If We're ready for him. Come on, Lord. Come already. You've promised this. We have a winning ticket. Or so they thought. But just like the clerk said to my dad, Malachi says this to the people. And he looks at them. He says, what is it you think you've won? They misread their circumstances. So let's read this this morning. If you would, turn to Malachi. We're in Malachi 2, verse 17. And if you have your phone or you're on your computer, you can always go to the Version app and you can find us there, FBC Coburg, in the events. It has our sermon notes as well as the scripture, or you could just kind of keep on track and guess when I'm going to be finished talking this morning. So let's read this. Malachi 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil in the sight of the Lord, by saying, evil is good in the sight of the Lord, sorry, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple." And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But 
Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will bring a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. If you will remember, Pastor Chad has mentioned that Malachi is speaking to Israel in the period after Nehemiah's first visit, before his second one. And in the past, the circumstances of the people seemed to show that they were in God's favor. At least that's what they thought. They had returned from exile after all. And, you know, the second temple was finally rebuilt. And the people reconfirmed their covenant with the Lord. Things looked really good when Nehemiah left the first time. It seemed like everything was back in place the way it should be. And all they were doing was just waiting for the Messiah. However, before Nehemiah came back, the Messiah hadn't arrived yet. They were still under Persian rule. The promised land wasn't exactly what they expected. And as we read a few weeks ago, even their sacrifices weren't being accepted. You see, people, the priests and the people, were violating the covenant any which way they wanted. They weren't following it. And the result was that people started asking questions. Did it make sense to follow these rules of the covenant? Everyone else, even those who were so-called good people, the people of the covenant are getting away with breaking it. Where is God? If he doesn't care or act, why should we care or act the way we thought, the way we were told we should? See, what they failed to do was recognize their own corruption. Nehemiah 9 makes it clear that their circumstances were a result of their own sin, not God's injustice. They were blaming God for their troubles. They felt they deserved a divine blessing, but they felt like they were being punished instead. You know, if they were my dad, they would insist that their ticket was a winner. And if we're honest, we think the same way, don't we? As we look around us today, either outside the church in, in the culture of today or even inside the church, we ask ourselves, God, where are you? How are you allowing this to happen? If everyone is getting away with their actions, what's the point? And it leads us to accuse God to do the same two things that the Israelites did. They accuse God. They say, well, God must delight in evil because they seem to prosper, or God must be unjust. You know, Kevin DeYoung says that the Israelites had a cause of foot-in-mouth disease. They had the gift of knowing exactly what was wrong with the world around them. And it was simple. The problem was always somebody else's fault. And we think like that too, don't we? It leads us to our first point this morning, that we are in no position to judge God. We are in no position to judge God. But accusing God of injustice is something that happens frequently by believers and unbelievers alike. Let's look at the first example. And when I say first, I mean like beginning first, like Genesis beginning with Adam and Eve. So if you'll remember in the garden that God created everything. He created everything, including Adam and Eve, and he tells them not to eat of the fruit. But they eat it anyway. And then we come to this passage in Genesis 3, verse 11. And the Lord's speaking here. He says, Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the, the woman, the woman you gave to me, she, she gave it to me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. 
Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the the serpent deceived me and I ate it. They ate the fruit and when God came to judge them, they did their best to shift the blame, to pass the buck. They passed it down the line. Adam said it was Eve, but when he said it was Eve, what is he actually saying? He's saying it was really God because God is the one who gave him Eve. And what does Eve say? Eve says it's the, per- it's the serpent, sorry. But who ultimately let the serpent into the garden? It was God. So Martin Luther, in his lectures on Genesis, he accuses Adam of saying this. He says, he accuses Adam of saying, Thou, Lord, has sinned. By passing the blame and complaining about injustice around us, we're actually claiming that we know better than God. We accuse him of sinning. And do you see how arrogant that is? Claiming that we, as mere humans, know better than the sovereign God, the creator and sustainer of all things. How horribly arrogant that is. It demands that God come down and defend himself against our petty standards of justice. There's an example similar in Job 38 where we find the account of the Lord's response to Job. 38.4 of Job says this, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. You know, he continues on this for actually like three or four chapters worth. He continues, he even gets, sacri- he even gets sarcastic at, at times. God says this, he says, surely you were born at the beginning of creation. You understand. Come on, Job, if you understand me, tell me. Finally, in, in, verse, in chapter 40, verse 2 of Job, the Lord says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Well, after four chapters of God putting Job in his place, Job repents. He repents of the fault in assuming that he knows better than God. How dare we accuse God of doing wrong? How dare we attempt to put ourselves in his place? Yet that's what so many of us do. One commentator put it bluntly, saying that those kind of accusations are on par with blasphemy. Remember, he is the potter and we are the clay. So what do you blame for your misfortunes? Is it your circumstances? God allowed those circumstances in your life. Is it people? Well, God made those people. And if we don't admit our own guilt in some sort of way, or at least admit that God might be delaying his judgment for some greater purpose that he knows and we don't, then we're saying that we know better than God and he acts sinfully. You see, the Israelites were not consumed with the zeal for the Lord's glory. They just wanted their problems to go away. Everyone else was prospering. While they were breaking the rules, the Israelites were trying to keep them, but it didn't seem like it was worth it. It's not fair. Like a child who accuses their parents of being unfair and unjust, they were grumbling to God. And we are grumblers too. So we have to think, when we bring things to God, are we concerned with what glorifies Him best? Or are we actually concerned of just our own benefit? Are we grumbling and complaining? We would do well to live our lives in the wisdom of Philippians 2.14, which says this, to do all things without grumbling or complaining. See, the Israelites were in no position to judge God, and we aren't either. He didn't even owe them a response. But God answers them anyway in chapter 3, verse 1. This is what he says, God's response. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord of hosts. Now, determining who's who in that verse is a little bit 
confusing. So let's make it clear. There's three different people. There's three different characters in that one verse. The first one is the one that's represented by the words I and my and we and ultimately the Lord of hosts. So he is God the Father, Yahweh who is speaking through Malachi the prophet. That one's pretty easy. Next we have the messenger and the messenger will prepare the way before God. You know that descriptor preparing the way should catch our attention. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he often says something that I find helpful when studying scripture. He reminds us when we're on a website or something, maybe even an email, and there's the blue text underlined. It's blue and it's underlined, and you can click on it, and it takes you somewhere else. It takes you to somewhere else that's linked to that word. It's called a hyperlink. Well, in the same way, when we're reading the Bible, we should be aware and thinking where these hyperlinks are. That phrase, to prepare the way, is a hyperlink. Actually, it brings us all the way back to Isaiah 40, verse 3 to 5, and actually all four Gospels as well, because the Gospels mention that text, at least in part, to refer to John the Baptist. It was John who prepared the way by baptizing the people. There was a sign of repentance. He preached that the Messiah was coming. It took a long time after Malachi's time, of course, but when we see John the Baptist, he is this messenger that he's talking about. So John the Baptist is the first messenger, but he's not the same as the messenger of the covenant or the Lord whom you seek. Those two descriptions are actually of someone else. The Messiah, who we as believers from the New Testament know is Jesus. So after the messenger, God announces that the expected messenger of the covenant will come. The Messiah, the one who will bring the promise of the covenant that the people were waiting for. They were expecting the Messiah to bring justice. But what they weren't expecting was the Messiah to be the Son of God, to be divine. But if we read carefully here, even in the Old Testament, we can see that it was prophesied here. God says that the one they would seek will come into His temple. Well, whose temple is it? It's God's, it's Yahweh's, and it speaks to the, to the divinity of Christ. Something that wasn't expected, and we read in the New Testament, wasn't accepted either. In John 10, verse 30 to 31, Jesus claims that He is one with the Father, and the Jews pick up stones expecting to stone Him. See, a divine Messiah was not expected. It's something we take for granted after reading the New Testament. But we can see, looking back in the Old Testament, it was prophesied. So, after verse 1, we see John the Baptist and we see Jesus, the Messiah. Those are the ones that are coming. And after verse 1, the people who have been listening are, you know, it's a pretty good answer so far. They're in good spirits. They wanted a God of justice, and God replies, I'm on my way. He's sending a messenger first, John the Baptist, and kings would often send a messenger before they came so they could clear traffic, they could get the, the roads ready for the royal caravan to come. So the Israelites are like, okay, bring them on. We know, we know the Messiah's coming. This is good. Next, the Lord will send the Messiah, the Deliverer, the one who's supposed to end oppression, bring God's earthly reign. You know, they had rebuilt the temple and they were longing for this promised uh, Messiah. They, and this seemed to be what they were asking for. So it's all good news. It's all good news until you hit verse 2. And verse 2 starts with the word, but. Have you ever been in a conversation that seems to be going really well and then the word but shows up? Very rarely is the information following that good news. Let me show you some examples. Yes, you can have a cookie, but first you have to finish your vegetables. You know, you would make a great addition to our team, but we just filled the position. The Toronto Maple Leafs clinched the division title, but fell apart in the first round of the playoffs. No, that's not a prophetic word. 
but I'm just going off past experience. Anyway, you guys get the point. Very rarely after the word but is there good news. And there's no exception here because, yes, the Lord is coming. The Lord you seek is coming, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? You're not ready. You don't know what you're asking for. You have the wrong expectations. Your lottery ticket is worthless. It'd be like a parent coming home early to find the kids in the midst of throwing a party. The rightful owner of the temple is going to come back suddenly. Now, suddenly doesn't mean right away, but it means unexpected. Kind of like, you know, Jesus was born in a manger, unexpected. They didn't expect him. Just like he will come swiftly when he returns, but we won't expect it. The owner of the temple was coming, and after reading a few weeks ago how the priests and the people had defiled the temple, it's probably not going to be a good thing. You know, we see a glimpse of this in the New Testament when Jesus comes into the temple and he drove out the money changers and the merchants. Even though that was only a temporary symbolic cleansing of the temple, it's not looking good for the people. And so our passage now turns to what it's actually going to look like when the Messiah comes. It's a reality check for the Israelites who thought they were ready for it, but they very quickly are going to learn that their current circumstances might not be so bad. So there are reasons why God is going to delay his judgment. They weren't ready for it. God is a God of justice, but he is also a God of grace, which leads us to our second point this morning. We need to be refined. We need to be refined. We see it in in chapter 3, verse 2 to 4. They speak of a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. You might be familiar with the refining process. In a, when you're refining something as a, like a precious metal, you heat up the fire, you get the, the metals, the ores all melted, and all the impurities called dross will rise to the top, and then they're scraped off by the refiner. And that process is repeated and repeated until there is no more impurities in the liquid. So when the refiner looks in this liquid metal, he sees his reflection. Now, the average temperature to refine gold is between 1,000 and 1,200 degrees Celsius. It's not very pleasant, is it? Now, you may not be familiar with fuller soap. A fuller was someone who would take raw wool and they would purify it. So they'd take the wool from the sheep and they'd purify it to make it white and usable. One source tells us that fulling involved carrying out using a strong soap like lye, perhaps, and they would put it on the wool and then they would take a club and they would pound the wool until it was clean both in refining and in fulling, the the imperfections, the impurities are removed. But the element itself is not destroyed. But the process isn't very pleasant either. And this is how God chooses to illustrate how he's going to purge sin from his people. Not very pleasant, but also not fatal. You see, there's a difference between a refiner's fire and a forest fire. The results of a a refiner's fire include purification, restoration, removal of the worthless and the the useless things. And the result of a forest fire is destruction, complete annihilation. Later on in Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 actually, we will hear about the judgment of the Lord being referred to as a forest fire where there will be no root or branch left, everything destroyed. But that's not the case here. Here we see that the Messiah was to come first as a refiner's fire, not the consuming fire. And why? Well, the simple answer is because God is a God of grace. 
Now, that seems kind of like a contradiction. How, is, how can he be a God of grace if he puts his people through fire? How is that gracious? Well, it's because of verses like Romans 3.23, for all have fallen short. We all fall short and, and we, we are sinful people. Sin is the issue here. We see the problem with the Israelites that they thought they were ready. Everyone else needed to be judged and they didn't. They were the good ones. However, the psalmist in Psalm 14 writes this in verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Not even one. Not the Israelites, not you, not me, no one. No one does good. We are sinful, and therefore, none of us could withstand that judgment. Jeremiah 2.22, Though you wash yourselves with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. No matter how hard we try, every single one of us deserves that consuming forest fire of judgment. We need the Lord's refining first. Even here in the Old Testament, isn't it cool that we see we must rely on God's grace to purify us, not our own abilities? You know, John Piper makes a very good point when he says these words. He says, we are impure by nature and by practice, but God will have no alloys in heaven, alloys being a mix of metals. And why? Because blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And yet, he will have some in heaven. He will have a redeemed people. His banquet hall will be full, and therefore, there must be a refiner's fire. If he were only a forest fire, heaven would be empty. And if he were no fire at all, heaven would still be empty. See, judgment is necessary. Refining is necessary. God is a just God. So the wages of sin must be paid. Yet despite the people's arrogant demand for justice, and even though they and we deserve an immediate judgment of sin, the God of justice is also a God of grace. And he sent his son as means of that grace. In John 3.17, we, we read this, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. On the cross, Jesus took the penalty of sin for all people. He took the forest fire so we didn't have to. And that's why Paul can write in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation, but there is refinement. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are taken out of that condemning forest fire and you are taken into the hands of the master refiner as he purifies our hearts. The ultimate goal of the refining process is to create a purified people who will finally be able to bring right offerings to God and serve Him in righteousness. See, the refiner wants to see his reflection in our lives. It started with the Levites in verse 3, the priestly line who we read a few chapters ago were offering sacrifices in an unrighteous way. But it didn't stop at the Levites. In verse 4, we see the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem are also accepted then. In other words, that their offerings will be pleasing to the Lord after they are refined. Now, we no longer give offering animal sacrifices, but rather we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, as Paul would put it, holy and acceptable to God. So what does this refining process look like in our lives? 
Well, a refiner's fire is still fire. Our lives will not always be pleasant. Sometimes removing things hurts. But we would do well to remember passages like Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 6-10. talks about how the Lord disciplines those who He loves. And the discipline that we endure is for our own good. So that we might share His holiness. God is discipling us as his beloved children so that we may share in his holiness. His refinement is an act of grace and love. 1 Peter 1, verse 6-7 reads this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. If we want holiness, if we want God's presence, if we want to be true worshipers, then it might mean hardship and trials. It's going to require a lot of pounding of the club before we are going to be clean. It's going to involve a lot of fire before we are going to be shiny and reflect Jesus. But only those who have been refined will stand in that final day. So how is Christ working in your life today to refine you, to make you more like himself? We should remember that this refining process is never complete until that final day. Sanctification is a lifelong process, and we will never obtain that perfect reflection of Jesus in this life. Yet we can be confident that he who started a work in us will complete it. Our justification is is secure in Jesus Christ because he's paid the price. But we're still left with this question. Why is it taking so long? Jesus has already come. God, what's going on? It's a similar question that, that Peter brings up in 2 Peter 3 verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. See, nothing seems to be changing, God. Why not? Where are you? Some of you may know I I used to be an elementary school teacher. And I would regularly give work periods to my students, especially in classes like science when they're working on simple machines or something like that. And this was a time for the students to work on their assignment. I had done my job as the teacher. I taught them everything they need to know. The only thing left for me to do was to give them the final grade. This was strictly a time for them to complete their project. Some decided to use this time wisely. They would tweak and refine their simple machines. They would try them out, improving them. Many of them faced challenges and they overcame them. But there were always some who wasted their time. They would wait till last minute or maybe some of them wouldn't even use any time at all. They wouldn't even complete their project. What I never got is why they got upset when the grade reflected the work. But in the class, there were some students who helped motivate those people, who helped motivate their peers. They would encourage them to use the time that I had given them wisely to take advantage of this period of time to work. You know, what they learned from tweaking and refining their own projects, they would help their their peers do the same thing. These kind of students would finish early, but they didn't waste their time. They ended up coming alongside others to help them achieve the same success that they had found. 
you know, in the same way, we are living in a grace period. Not a work period. Jesus paid everything. He's done all the work for us. But a grace period. If we are already recipients of that grace, we shouldn't be asking God to come now and condemn those around us who aren't covered by his grace. Just like my students who finished early didn't say, hey, come mark all of our assignments now because we're done. We should be sharing that critical information that we have with those who don't have it yet. We should take on a role similar to John the Baptist who was preparing the way for Jesus' coming. We know Jesus is coming again. We need to be spreading the good news. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around us who it hasn't been revealed to yet. And why? Because this is a grace period and God is gracious, but when it ends, judgment is going to follow. Look at 2 Peter 3 again, this time in verse 7. But the same word, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It's coming. But verse 8 says this. But do not overlook the, this one fact, beloved, that the Lord that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God is patient. Beyond our patience, that's for sure. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's that grace period we're in now. But look at verse 10. But, remember I said the word but before? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Judgment's coming. That leads us to our final point this morning. Those who are not refined will be judged. It isn't until verse 5 of this passage that the God of judgment will actually come here. It's only after that grace period, it's only after Jesus would come and pay the price for their sins that God would draw near to them for judgment. So God is a patient and loving and gracious God, but nevertheless, judgment is coming. But notice that God will be the witness. God will be the judge. As we already read in Psalm 14, the Lord is the one who looks down from heaven and he sees everything. He doesn't need anyone else to witness against you. He is the only reliable witness. And that's why judgment is going to be swift and it's going to have no delay. There's a list here in verse 5 of sins, all of which are prohibited in the Ten Commandments. Sorcery, adultery, lying, oppressing the vulnerable of society. But before you start glazing over and claiming that you're not affected by those sins, notice the wording in verse 5, that the Lord will draw near to you for judgment. Who's the you? Well, it's the people who demanded God's justice. It's the people who thought they were good enough. Those are the very ones who thought they were good enough, but they are the ones who are sinning in this way. See, the list of sins here is actually, it represents the whole covenant, the whole code. But we separate sins in our minds, don't we? The two categories. The first one is, is important sins, and the second one is unimportant sins. And usually in our own minds, at least, the, the important sins that people need to be judged for are ones that other people commit. And the unimportant ones, well, those are the ones that we commit that aren't so bad. And as a result, we speak out against different sins, but not against others. We play favorites. Without realizing it, we think that others deserve more judgment than we do. But when Jesus returns, he is going to judge all sin. 
the public sins, the private sins, the ones you think are heinous, the ones that you think are just a joke. No, we fool ourselves when we think that our sins are less important to God than the ones others commit. This famous passage in Matthew 7, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, here, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we are guilty but plus, the reality is that many of these sins that we think we don't struggle with, like sorcery, we actually struggle with. Now, I'm sure none of you at home were thinking, yeah, you know, sorcery is something that I really struggle with and I, I need to be judged for that. But it's more than just tarot card readings and voodoo dolls and black magic. Sorcery is attempting to ma manipulate spiritual things for your own benefit. So, do you try to use religion to serve yourself? Do you attend church as a help to make your own life flow more smoothly? Do you ask God each day just to make your life easier? Do you pray that your difficulties will go away rather than seeking how God is trying to refine you through them? Similar way, the next one in the list is adultery. You know, many of us have committed adultery, if not physically, in our thought lives. Jesus spoke in Matthew 5, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. So I could go on and on through these lists, but I think you guys get the point. We're guilty of sin even though we don't think it. And all sin here is, is summarized in a catch-all phrase that is used here by Malachi that says, they don't fear the Lord. If we don't have a reverent fear of the Lord, then we will continue to sin. And the verdict against us is clear. Even if we don't commit all of these things, James tells us in James 2 verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become guilty of it all. So we trick ourselves if we think there's any hope in us being good enough. There is no one good, not even one. Malachi's message was meant to convict the people of Israel, and it's also meant to convict us. We have to realize that when we see sins in others, we have to also see sins in ourselves. It shows that we are so utterly dependent on God's grace. Now, this isn't exactly a feel-good sermon, is it? One commentator described this section of Scripture as a negative motivation passage. We don't really like those. We would have preferred to end where the Israelites would have preferred to end, that Jesus is coming. Good news. But I heard something at a conference years ago that has stuck with me. Staying true to the text means also staying true to the, to the tone and the mood in this part of Scripture. This portion of Scripture isn't ending pleasantly. It ends with judgment and fire. And even just before that, the refinement process isn't all fun and games for us either. But that's the point. This is a portion of God's Word where His people have been accusing Him where they have questioned his ways, his decisions, and they arrogantly ask, where is this God of justice? We're ready for him to come back. But God knew that they needed Jesus first, and he knows we need Jesus first. But judgment is coming. With no Jesus, you cannot withstand it. 
But thankfully, right now we are in that grace period, that time of grace. And even though it may not feel like it, God is being loving by allowing it. So if you're watching this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, if you are one of those people who says, if God is a God of justice, why isn't he doing anything? I assure you, he is coming. Only when he comes, he will come as a judge, not in grace. So take advantage of this time. He's waiting for your benefit. It's not too late to trust in Jesus, to admit that you're a sinner, to repent and accept the payment that Jesus paid on the cross for your sins. He offered it on your behalf and he's been patient for people like you. And if you are a believer today, I'll leave you with two things. One is that we cannot give in to the temptation of jumping out of the refining fire because it's not beneficial to us. The process isn't always pleasant, but let's trust God as the, as the true refiner. Trust in his goodness for our lives. And secondly, don't, con- go, don't condemn sinful people around you, but, but take advantage of this grace period for their benefit. Lovingly tell people about Jesus. Share his word with all the people you know. Be Christ's messenger and prepare them for Jesus' return. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word even when it is hard to hear. But we do pray that you give us ears to hear it, Lord. Lord, I pray for anyone watching this morning who who may not know you. Lord, would you convict them that they need you? Father, we pray for those who think that they, they can make their way to heaven without you, without the gift of your Son. God, would you open their eyes, just like you showed the Israelites that they are not ready, Lord. And would you, re, would you remind us as well, those who know you, Father, through your Son, that it is not anything we deserve. Lord, we deserve judgment just like anybody else, but thankfully that your son came that we don't have to go through it. Lord, would you remind us as we go through our lives and we live in these struggles that you are refining us because you are the ultimate refiner. You are skilled, Lord. You take out the useless things of our lives, even if it's painful, often when we don't have the strength to do it by ourselves. So Lord, would you change our perspective on these things? And by grace, would you just allow us to become more like you, that we might be a reflection of your Son as we become more and more refined. In Jesus' name, amen.